Hey friends, it's Jenna Overbaugh here. I'm a licensed professional counselor and I'm here to help you do all the hard things, including busting through your fear, intrusive thoughts, and worry so you can live your best life. Some of my earliest memories were being anxious and I lived my life that way until I learned more about OCD and anxiety. Since then, I learned as much as I could and I've been helping people overcome their fear and worry since 2008. Over the years, I've acquired some of the best education, training, and empowerment tools to help you understand your brain a little bit better and to finally overcome all of that fear that's been holding you back. Now, if you're ready to learn more, let's get to it. Welcome back, you guys, to another episode of All the Hard Things. I'm joined here with one of my good friends and fellow OCD and anxiety specialists, among so many other things, Carly Samick. She is a licensed mental health counselor. Carly, is that what it is? Yep, licensed mental health. There you got it. Yeah, I, a little background story for all of you who are listening. I met Carly at our old job and I just loved her from the very beginning. I don't know. It was just a feeling. It was just a feeling. I just knew that I loved Carly. And anytime that I got the chance to have somebody on a project with me, or work with somebody more. I was like, Carly freaking Stamick. I I would say I don't know what it is, but I know what it is. She's amazing. She's so sweet. She's so talented. She's just a good egg. She's just a good freaking egg. So I'm so excited to have her here with you. And we were able to actually speak last year at the International OCD Foundation Conference in Colorado. It was epic, along with our other good friend and OCD specialist, Karen Gill. That was just one of my favorite memories and really happy to have you here with me. Carly, we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics, which is hope as it relates to OCD and anxiety and exposure and response prevention. So before we get too far into it, I want you to have the floor to just introduce yourself, how you got into this space and what you're up to nowadays. Cool. First off, thank you for the warmest, one most wonderful introduction. I feel like the first thing that connected us was you were looking through like intro videos that all the therapists did and you somehow saw something in my babbling on video, which I was like, that warmed my heart immediately. I was like, if she thinks that's decent, then I got to get to know her because it was a fun time making the silly video. So yeah, you hit all the notes. I'm Carly Samick. I am a clinical therapist. I specialize in OCD and anxiety. I would say my subspecialties alongside that are mindfulness and art therapy. But then I spent a good majority of my career working in the pediatric and children and family zones too. So I found my way into anxiety, OCD specific care after many years, about a decade of time in inpatient psychiatric care working with everything from trauma, severe persistent mental health, traumatic brain injury, mostly with kids between the ages of four to 18 and their guardians. I just found myself increasingly over that time becoming invested in anxiety disorders and OCD. I had outside of my clinical practice started really incorporating these more somatic mindfulness, holistic modalities too. And I just found that there was such a nice correlation between the work I could do therapeutically as well as this more holistic modality for the anxiety OCD population. And so I found my way over to our old space and really just took off from there. I don't know. I guess the best I can describe is that it clicked. And I think I spoke to you about this a lot, too. There was like this imposter syndrome because I was like, I'm new to the game, but this just makes sense to me. And it's just flourished since. Yeah. And what I really respect about your approach and your expertise and just melding all of it together is that 
you do it in a way that is theoretically very complementary of exposure and response prevention. It's not like in replacement of, it's not necessarily something that you don't teach people to do it in a way that's urgent or desperate, which is how people can sometimes use some of those more holistic things. And for people who have OCD and anxiety, it can become really problematic to do that because we're not doing it with the right intentions. We're doing it ritualistically. So I've always loved how like you are my trusted source for, okay, how do we incorporate mindfulness? How do we incorporate meditation? How do we incorporate all of these other more holistic things into ERP in a way that's like well-informed, that's not going to contradict anything. So I absolutely love that. So we did talk about the training that we did. We did a mindfulness training together and a meditation training together. And that was really awesome too. So talk to the audience a little bit about that and like why that might be different in a good way from maybe what they might be used to as far as like mindfulness or meditation. Absolutely. I was so stoked to be able to do that training because like you said, my sort of sector, we'll call it, of mindfulness care is all evidence-based informed, but specifically informed through the lens of ERP and evidence-based care for OCD and anxiety. I think that in general, often meditation is handed over as a coping skill, like whether we're talking about in a therapy space or just, hey, you should do this meditation if you're anxious. But there's no education. There's no sense of, okay, what's the purpose of this style of specific meditation? Because there's so many different out there. So I have loved really marrying what I know as a clinical therapist and someone who cares deeply about not just evidence-based care, but just also how the brain works too. So I'm really interested in cognitive science and understanding brain and how it works and how we perceive things. And then marrying that again with my sort of more holistic, somatic mindfulness zone. And so when we got together to work on that training, my only goal was that individuals who had struggled with OCD and anxiety, who had tried meditation over and over, mindfulness over and over and had horrible experiences, that they would walk away with a sense of, oh, this is what it can be like. And I think what was like very overwhelming in the most wonderful way for me was that it wasn't as though people walked away saying, oh, I feel bright and cheery, which obviously sounds great. And that's awesome. But truly, many of them, this was an exposure and it allowed them to meet themselves in this more vulnerable space and hold space for that and not divert and not avoid and not compulse and recognize that, wait, I can just flow through this space and decompress. And that in itself made more space for them. So we got so much great feedback from people saying that they had never been able to meditate before, that they were feeling emotional in a way that felt very healthy. And to me, that was like, I could not have asked for a better representation of what I was trying to put out there for people. Exactly. And that's like what people need to do during exposures, right? Like it all comes back to that acceptance. It comes back to that willingness and psychological flexibility, which is just making space for difficult emotions. Can you make space for those difficult emotions and allow them to be there versus rushing off and going off to the races to try to fix it and try to make it better? And I've listened to some of your meditations. Like I've listened, I've had the honor of working on some special projects with you. And so I know like this, I know how you approach it and you're never sitting there saying everything is going to be okay. Blah, blah, blah. You're never feeding anybody any bullshit. It's just, it's truly sitting with an exposure epitomized. Like it's amazing what you do. And it's, I'm sure people out there are like, okay, how do you sit with that discomfort? How do you sit with that discomfort? Because we talk about exposures all the time. We talk about resisting compulsions all the time. And so before we get into the hope part that I really do want to dig into more, 
Like, how would you describe that to somebody? How do you sit with that uncomfortable emotion? Yeah, I feel like that's it's the cliche thing. Like, hey, just sit with it. Or where do you feel it in your body? And everyone's, what do these therapists mean? Because it is so ridiculously abstract. The way that I coach it, the way that I go about it with my clients and with any groups or trainings that I'm doing is how can you be with this moment exactly as it is without trying to change it, manipulate it or edit it, which is in all essence kind of the definition of what mindfulness is. But I actually think that's very in line with what ERP asks us to do, too. So I try to give people different avenues, I guess, is the best way to put it. So for one, just let's dip into the body. What emotions are you feeling right now? Let's name those things. Let's see what that's like over the next couple of minutes. Sometimes it's also learning how to not engage. So non-engagement, learning how to be aware of your thoughts without overly engaging, or as I often refer to zooming in on them. I talk to all of my clients about how having a 3000 foot view is always our goal to be able to see the process, not the content. So in my specific meditation, let's say OCD, anxiety, meditation informed practices, like you said, you will never hear me say everything is okay. Nothing is wrong. Because honestly, like, why do we need that? We don't need that. That's reassurance. It's not also realistic in life. We're going to have times we're not okay. And that's actually okay. There are going to be things that are wrong. And that's completely normal. So we need to actually lean back into those spaces and renormalize ourselves to those. So in the meditations, I'll walk people through different avenues to get back to themselves, whether it be within their body or being observant of their thoughts or just following their breath, you'll also very rarely ever hear me do anything outside of let's just follow the breath and see where it goes. I'm not asking them to count to a certain number. I'm not asking to do box breathing. I want them to be willing to be a follower and observer of their own breathing, which again, for many people is an exposure. But this is all to say that those different avenues helps them to, again, let go of some control, lean into the moment as it is, and just see what happens and hold space for it. And it's a practice. And every person I work with is a little different in terms of how they take that practice on and make it their own. But that's the ultimate goal. For sure. And I know you've done a special project on this for the work that we've done together, but it's so hard for people to just sit and do nothing, right? Like to just sit and be mindful. That in and of itself can be like the most difficult exposure in and of itself because we're so used to society is constantly encouraging us or oh my gosh, you have to be busy. You have to be thinking something. Even my son last night, he's five. He was getting ready for bed and he's, I'm just so bored. I can't come up with anything to think about. And I'm like, oh my gosh, has it really like already hit him at five years old that we constantly have to be busy and that we constantly have to be thinking of something? So there's something to be said about how hard it is, especially for people with OCD and anxiety to just sit and do nothing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that too? Yeah, I actually try to even, to your point, I try to bring up the fact that we live in a society that is obsessed with urgency. Urgency is the rhythm, it's the pace, it's the underlying bravado of so much of our world, whether it be when we're in traffic or we're at work trying to finish a million tasks or we're maybe over planning ourselves. So I try to almost take it away. I don't like, to, I like to give OCD as little credit as possible whenever possible. So I like to always bring attention to the fact that even if we are doing some, what I refer to as stillness exposures often, which is essentially allowing a person to just sit with a moment and I can go further into that. I will bring to their attention that, yeah, their OCD is no question making that more difficult because of how the disorder works, but that as a human being, anyone who's living in nowadays is used to living in urgency. So stillness exposures, which is just like my, that's my terminology. 
I would say that many other providers would just refer to it as meditation even, is when I have my clients sit and stare at a point on the wall that's boring and just see what happens. And honestly, that tends to be one of the more difficult exposures I have people do, regardless of other more in vivo, like difficult, really in your face stuff. Sitting with yourself is actually a huge ask. And I think that's because it forces us to just be with whatever our mind goes to, whatever our feelings go to, whatever our body goes to. And we're used to distracting from that, whether it be in rumination or a phone or a job or a task, we're used to distracting ourselves from that. I love what you said about giving OCD as little credibility as possible. I do that when it comes to like how behavior change in general is really hard. I always bring it back to like how changing any habit is really hard, whether that's dieting, whether that's taking up a new exercise routine, whether that's stopping smoking, right? Like any behavior change is hard. You're going to still have those urges. You're still going to want to do those things. You just have to commit to not doing it. So I love that. I'm here for giving OCD as little credit as possible. It doesn't deserve any more than it gets. Amazing. So while my dogs are barking in the background and I go and fix that, talk to us a little bit about hopefulness. And I know that you submitted to some something to IOCDF. This is something that you feel really passionately about. I don't even know that you and I have talked about it super in depth. So I want to hear more. Talk to me about hope work, exposure focuses, so on and so forth. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you about it because I do think that this could be a really great broader conversation in the provider network, but also within the community of anyone who lives with OCD. And also your dogs are being super quiet, way quieter than mine usually are because they can't hear anything. But I would say that the beginning of the journey was this. I was working with clients for a good bit. I had been doing ERP at that point for, I'd say, at least a couple of years. And I was seeing this like common pattern with good majority of my clients. So they would get to a space where what they initially came into therapy for had really resolved. So the really acute, like in your face, intrusive thoughts, compulsions and rituals had been stabilized. And I would hear them tell me I've achieved this goal and I've done this thing. And so many of these sort of recovery goals that we had been working towards were getting done. But there was this like atmosphere about these clients that just appeared hesitant and villain and almost sad at times. So I was like, what's happening here? You're finally doing the thing. And I can see that this just isn't sitting with them. And so I just remember like poking around and I'm big on understanding a person's story. So I'm a huge believer that there, there are layers to every kind of therapy session and there are layers to every kind of like treatment. And so sometimes we just need to go into the story and better understand what's happening there, the function of it all, so that we can shift and change the therapy or what we're doing in that moment to better suit us. That was where my head was at. And I was coming to recognize that in so many of these clients with that presentation, they were very fearful of being hopeful about the future, despite the fact that they had all this evidence in the world that they were doing the thing, that they had conquered the unconquerable. They were so ambivalent about giving themselves this gift of hope, this sense of I am deserving of it, or I won't jinx a bad thing, or I've done enough for it. They could not see themselves in that way. There was this distortion that they had to stay small. And so hope became this like really interesting facet for me. I don't know if initially I was like, oh, this is hope, but I knew that it was something about seeing the future in a positive regard with uncertainty attached. And so after some research and some kind of bouncing around with a couple of clients, 
I came to realize that, yeah, it really was hope we were talking about. And we started doing exposures related to hope. And it was terrifying for these individuals. But as they did them, they actually, A, became more hopeful, but B, they really felt their achievement. And they really found themselves in that next level of recovery that we were looking to help them get to. So this is all to say that OCD had, in a very sneaky way, made hope off limits for them. And they took it back. I have seen that so many times with people. It's uncanny. And I have my own thoughts. Like I can imagine and go back to those people that I've worked with and imagine or sort through some of their what ifs, some of their fears. But I re- I really want to hear it from your perspective. What do you think some of those people's what if fears were? What do you think some of their fears were, some of their obsessions, some of their hesitancies, and maybe even some of their core fears too? What do you think that all was fueled by? So I will say that this is all just anecdotal to the work that I've been doing. We'll call it research I've been doing. But the three categories, the three sort of distortions, I would say that majority of everyone can really relate to that I've worked with who have struggled with hope was, one, I'm afraid I'll jinx things. So some magical thinking. If I say out loud that I want this thing to happen or that I'm doing well, I will ruin everything. I'm not deserving of hope. So this lack of self-compassion, a poor view of self, or I haven't done enough. So perfectionism, this sense of there is a line that I have to achieve before I'm allowed to be hopeful. So to give I, like more specific examples, lots of things I heard were things like, what if I say that I am doing better or I want to even do better at this thing and that ruins everything. So that's that jinxing or magical thinking. Or I just don't think that like I'm ready because I still have to be a better person at this. The self-compassion stuff was really nuanced. You had to look for that sense of self-negativity or that self-punishment. And then the perfectionism one often looked like I need to get this and this done before I'm allowed to even think about the hopeful things for the future for myself. So those were the most common categories I would say that I was determining. I've definitely seen all of those too. What else I've seen is this like almost learned helplessness that mm-hmm. I, I, it's almost like the devil that you know is better than the devil that you don't know. It's, I have been in this awful place of OCD and anxiety. I'm in the trenches and as awful as it is, like what if I have that moment of recovery and I feel good, but then I lose it all again. Is there a way that it could go even deeper for me? Could I become even more disappointed? I wonder if there's almost like this fear of disappointment in the future. It's like, I already am here and I know that this is going to be awful versus is it's so scary to put yourself out there and be vulnerable because that's what hope really requires, right? Is that you require of yourself to be vulnerable, to take that leap of faith. And Mm -hmm. that's scary because it could be taken away, right? Like you could do, you could give yourself credit for this. And then maybe you do have a lapse later on. And then maybe you are under the perception that was all complete bullshit. So I think just a fear of disappointment too. And I don't know, I wonder if core fears come up like fear of just feeling bad forever, like that fear of loss, of having had something really good, but then they lose it again. Yeah, you couldn't have it more correct. So the core fears under not underlying those categories were absolutely that fear of loss, fear of disappointment. I love that sentiment, like the familiar devil. I often refer to it as chaos can become familiar and it's safe because it is familiar, at least in that very moment. And I should say also that I've defined, at least in this work, I've defined hope. And if you look hope up, there's actually definitions that really correlate with this, even in the known different aspects of like spiritual, just Webster dictionary or even psychological, but it's a positive regard for the uncertain future. So it's not wishful thinking. 
It's not like I want this to happen and this is how it has to happen. It's being willing to be positive about the uncertainty at the unknown of the future. So I think that in itself just speaks to why the core fears can stem so deeply in the space of loss and the, and disappointment in my mind is so connected to that too. If I am disappointed, then I have loss of joy or I have loss of that hope. And so all the exposures are aimed at helping people to persevere in their hope regardless of those what ifs. This is ERP 101. And that was terrifying for all of my clients who have done that to name what they're hopeful for. But first, I often get, was this reassuring if I do this? No, the way that I constitute any hope exposure is with a massive injection of uncertainty. There are no like statements of this is what's going to happen. They just have to learn how to name that they're hopeful for this thing and they don't know if it's going to happen. And that in itself is the exposure. I love that. I was going to say and ask, what were some other examples of exposures that you've done? I'm hearing that you've done exposures where like they share something that they're hopeful for, or I could imagine even like sharing an accomplishment. I've definitely had to do those exposures with people like where they're afraid from a hope perspective of sharing this celebration because again, they don't want to lose it. They don't want to feel that hopefulness or feel that vulnerability just for it to be taken away again. What are some other exposures, if you can think of any, that might have been done as a hope exposure? I have, I'm a big fan of being creative in my work. And so I try to come up with a lot of different imaginal creative features as well as some medieval. So something that's super simple by the sound of it, but not by doing it for money is just saying out loud, like you said, something that they're hopeful for. So even like leaving off our session with, hey, I'm hopeful that by next week, I might be a little bit better at this thing. So again, no certainty injected with uncertainty, but a positive regard. And just saying that out loud is often really difficult. Writing different stories about things that we're hopeful for in the future, drawing pictures of different spaces or avenues or things that a person is hopeful about. These are imagining, these are all different imaginals. But then with Invivo, trying to get them out in the world being hopeful. Is there this thing that you've never signed up for that you've always been curious about? Let's sign up for it. Let's see what happens. Is there an action that you would like to take with somebody that you at this point, denied yourself because we don't allow ourselves to be hopeful. So this is where we take action and we really commit it to the process of being hopeful in the uncertainty of it all. I love that. And I love, again, that you are infusing this little bit of uncertainty because I can see how some people would maybe take that as reassurance, but that's not the case. And it happens too. I've had to have people, like I say, I've had to have people share an accomplishment with somebody or kind of compliment themselves or just generally be nice to themselves because yeah. somehow that's very anxiety provoking for them. And yeah. I get the question or the concern sometimes that that's reassurance. And it's like nothing inherently is good or bad. We have to step away from just those blanket statements and assumptions about, oh, this is reassurance or this is that. And it's like, it depends so much more on the function. And why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. Something that's very reassurance reassurance for one person could be an exposure for somebody else. So yeah, it's like really thinking creatively and really thinking about that person versus just applying these like very general blanket rules to somebody in their treatment. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I just think that if, if we become too rigid about how we entertain different interventions. So if it has to be this and it has to be that, then in so many ways, we're still letting anxiety and OCD be the name, right? Maybe not in all cases, but to some degree. 
obviously there are certain boundaries that we need to be mindful of. So if I know someone is tends to edge towards reassurance in a certain manner, we're going to make sure that their hope exposure doesn't edge in that way. But it's that mental flexibility, that willingness to be flexible. And I actually think hope is a great exercise of flexibility because like we said, we're not just naming the uncertainty, we're naming what we hope for in the midst of that uncertainty. That requires a lot of flexibility, especially when the fear of disappointment or feeling like you're not worthy or not wanting to jinx it is potentially like on the chopping block. So I couldn't agree more. I think that you've got to be willing to think outside of the box sometimes. Absolutely. So I think that you are like perfect for this. And I can totally see why this niche within the OCD and anxiety field really has sparked your interest because like you are such a bright light. And I know that we are often our worst critics. And I know you probably are your first thought is going to be like, oh my gosh, that's so not me. But you to me are just such a bright light, like your energy. You've always just been nothing but an amazing person and an amazing friend. So like I can see how the opportunity to give someone that hopefulness and to be able to feel that in their treatment, like that probably just gives you so much joy. And that's what makes you an amazing therapist. Like if you are my therapist, I would walk away feeling so hopeful. And isn't that what we all want? We all want to walk away feeling hopeful and capable. You Uh give people that feeling. And that's why I love you so much. Um, Health has really drawn you to this work. So again, there's just so many pieces in here that is just so Carly-esque. What else about this work really draws you to it? First off, I can't thank you more than that. That is just so you. If I leave anyone feeling like with a little bit of brightness or with hope or just like a sense of safeness and whatever is going on with them, that is my ultimate goal, especially as a therapist, but as a person too. And right back at you, I think you're living in your destiny right now and everything that you're doing and what you're meant to do too with it because you have such a powerful voice and such a willingness towards having the most important conversations. So thank you so very much for that. I think that this work You know how I am a big believer that when you put yourself out there and when you follow what you're passionate about, you do find your passions and you find the things that really connect deeply. So I think ERP was that for me. I think that finding the OCD anxiety community was that for me. I am always very upfront that I don't meet criteria for OCD, but I deeply empathize and resonate with rumination. I've always dealt with rumination growing up. General anxiety was the name of the game for me from as long as I can remember to now. But I think that hope work has actually always been there. The choice to be hopeful is a really risky one. And I've seen that actually in other spaces too. It's one of the things that draws me to hope as a concept is that it's actually everywhere. It's in spiritual work. It's in psychological work. It's in cognitive behavioral work. It's everywhere you look. And it's kind of discussed as this variable, but it's not necessarily given this like immense platform for what it means to live in hope. And so I know from my own personal experiences that when life has handed me some of the toughest moments, some of my worst case scenarios, which I'm also a really big proponent of within therapy, talking about the fact that worst case scenarios can sometimes come true. It's an unfortunate truth, but a truth nevertheless. And to choose to be hopeful in spite of worst case scenarios, I want to be very clear about that. That doesn't mean that we are happy that the worst case scenario happened. That doesn't mean that we don't have feelings about it. We have lots of feelings of all different shades and colors. But to choose to move through a worst case scenario moment in life or a difficult moment in life and choose to remain hopeful and open to uncertainty, I think is one of the most radically courageous choices any person can make. So when I see my clients being able to choose hope, 
when they otherwise wanted to choose to stay in the chaos, the familiar chaos. To me, that is like the most powerful thing I've seen as a therapist. And so I just, I could do this work for the rest of my life and be completely fulfilled. I love it. It's so amazing. And like, you feel it, you feel it. I don't know. I'm on the other side and I know that people who are listening are going to be feeling it too. I wonder, I'm always trying to think of the people who are out there listening to this right now in their car or on a walk. I'm trying to think of the person who is just like in the freaking trenches and they've been down this lane before and everything that you're saying is like in one ear and out the other. What would you say to them as far as why they should, what can they do to have hope? What is something that they should know right now about the hopefulness that they should have? Well, so I think the first thing that is that I get asked a lot about or what comes about in conversation first is that there's a sense of how do I become more hopeful? And hope, much like motivation, is a choice at first. It's a muscle you have to learn how to work. So if you're listening to this right now and life has just been handing you one crappy card after the next, your brain, your mind, your soul, your spirit is likely going to feel really tired. And so when we're feeling really tired, we often feel scared or negative. And some of this is really primal. Some of it, I think, is just a part of being a human. Do not go into like cognitive science of how we go into like negative distortions and this, that, and the other. Just being human is tough. Simply put, being human is tough. And so it's really not easy in the way that this is the choice we want to make, but there is ease that comes to getting stuck to the un- the negativity or the uneasiness of life. So the first thing I want to say to you is you have a choice right now, and it's not an easy one. It's a ridiculously tough one, but it's a choice to make a different move, to do something just a little bit different. So if all you say to yourself right now is, I hope blank for myself, I hope for I hope that tomorrow will feel like a new day. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I hope that by next week, I will feel improved. I don't know if that will happen, but I'm hopeful for that. That in itself is a radical choice. And the more that you make that choice, interestingly, just like how the more that we choose to do things that we're passionate about, we become more motivated. The more we choose to be hopeful and lean into the uncertainty, the more hopeful we tend to be naturally. Yeah, I think the first thing I'd say to anyone who's like, how do I become more hopeful? How do I feel that positivity and the uncertainty? You make the choice to just start saying it, to just start doing it, just to do it. And then you let that flourish. I read in a book, this is from Jen Sincero, You Are a Badass, and it's not an OCD and anxiety book at all. It's more so just general mental health. Like, why are you already a badass? Like, why do you already have all of the things in the world that you think that you need, but you already have them? And she says that it takes just as much energy to shit on yourself as it does to challenge yourself to feel hopeful. And I love that, right? This isn't like a one teeny tiny choice. And then ethically, everyone is super hopeful. And oh my gosh, I see the light. It's like teeny tiny little small decisions. Mm-hmm. And I attended at the International OCD Foundation Conference this year in California. Ethan Smith and a couple of other awesome individuals did a really amazing talk on aha moments. Yeah. And how a lot of times in OCD and anxiety recovery, we're like waiting for that aha moment. I can't. I can't challenge myself or I can't take the risks to feel hopeful today because I haven't had that aha moment yet. And they really made the push to, instead of waiting for an aha moment, go make your aha moment happen. Go behave in such a way that you are already in your aha moment. Go behave in a way 
that would allow that aha moment to happen. We're never going to allow that to happen when we are just in this learned helplessness type of space. And so even if it's just something small, right, like small ways of challenging yourself, whether that's physically or in terms of your behaviors, it's so important. Just small little choices, small little choices. Yeah, they make the difference. And this goes back to that sense of it's such a layered experience to do this kind of work. It might start feeling like a choice and then it turns into this feeling or into this intention that feels really natural to you that maybe looks so different than when you just started to make the choice to say this thing out loud that felt scary and unnerving. And then that might also lead you to some greater in-depth insight to yourself about why hope felt so off limits. I'm, I had a supervisor in the past who said, Carly, therapy is this art of starting with what we can see and then getting towards what we feel and what we've known was always there. And I really think that this work is a pathway for that at times for individuals, that they start with a choice to say or do something that is in essence hopeful but uncertain. And that leads them to really being able to touch base with something in them that they couldn't see but they knew was always there. What a great episode. Carly, you're amazing. I love you so much. And I'm so glad that you got to hopefully uplift some of the listeners and give them something to chew on. Before we hop off, I really want to give you an opportunity to talk about where people can find you more. I'll be sure to link your bio and link your Instagram in the show notes. But any other ways that people can stay up to date with you and any other cool things that you have going on? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me, Donna. I absolutely adore you. I love everything you're doing. I love you as a human. I'm just so grateful to have this conversation with you. And second to that, yes, you can find me over at Counseling with Carly on Instagram. It is a page that I am working on getting a little bit more energized. I've taken a break because I've been in the process of opening up my own private practice. So I'm officially a private practice clinician. For me, that means that I want to provide not just one-on-one care for individuals, but I'm hoping to do groups. I'm hoping to do workshops. So look out for me both on Psychology Today. I do have a website that's going to be under a revamp. It should be up and running by end of August on Instagram. And one of the things that I'll be doing in the soonish future, we don't have an exact date yet, but we're looking at the beginning of September. A good friend of mine, local to me, is a dietitian, and we are all about providing accessible information about nutrition and mental health. So we're going to do a stress and nutrition-focused workshop in the beginning of the fall. So be on the lookout for that over on my Instagram. So exciting. And because I can't keep a secret, I'm just going to say, Carly and I have some really fun things planned for you guys. So. I wasn't going to say anything. I was like, that's not my secret to tell. But yes, I'm really horrible at keeping secrets, but I have kept this for a secret pretty well, like better than any birthday surprise or like Christmas present for sure. So I'm proud. Not not getting rid of too many details, but if you're in my ecosystem, you'll be seeing Carly quite a bit. So I love you. I love you so much. I will always shout everything that you do from the rooftop. So whenever you're stuff goes up your website whenever your groups are going whatever it is that you do you guys can always learn about it from me and i will always be rooting for carly because she's just incredible so great thank you carly thank you so much i love you and until next time stay tuned and keep doing all the hard things Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. It would mean the world to me if you would take a quick minute to please give it a review. 
And while you're at it, check out my website at www.jennaoverbaughlpc.com to sign up for my free email newsletter that includes an instant free downloadable PDF to help jumpstart your OCD and anxiety recovery journey. You can also find me on Instagram or TikTok at jenna.overbaugh. If you liked what you listened to here, you can download some of my workshops and courses on OCD, anxiety, and treatment at my website as well. Thank you so much again for tuning in and until next time, keep doing all the hard things.